Okay, we're good to go. We're recording. All right. Everybody set cool. to go. Matt, you uh, you comfortable in your in your car office? I'm I'm totally comfortable in my car office. This is more comfortable than any other office I have, frankly. That's, that's... We were wondering if it's a panel van, kind of like the FBI has, with the desks in the back and all the monitors. To- totally. That's what I'm. That's what I'm, I roll out in that. I, my I, my my second job is as a CIA spy. Oh, good. Well, you know, you guys have a lot of relationships there, so I mean, being embedded, <laughs> being embedded is important. So yeah, 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 uh, that's right. <laughs> so you know, uh, this this week it's episode twenty two of the Hot Isle, uh, and uh, I am Brian Carpenter. I'm here with my co-host Brent Piatti. Good morning, everyone. Awesome, Brent. Uh, this week we have with us uh, the illustrious, the world renowned, and uh, I just overdid it for him, and he's gonna be mad. Uh, Matt Baker of Dell. Matt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here, and, and that was a, a great introduction. But I world renowned might be a stretch. Well, we're maybe often renowned, but that's cool. <laughs> we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about some of the things that have made you uh, famous and uh, where your where your former protege have moved on to. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 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 goal of the show this week is to uh, educate you on the the innovation in the changing landscape at Dell Corp. Uh, and essentially, we're going to kind of talk all things Round Rock, and Round Rock is is where it started in '88, uh, but we've uh, we've certainly seen it blow up to uh, you know a major force in the industry, and um, we simply want to kind of discuss what's uh, fueling the future of what Dell Corp is looking to 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 bring to consumers, uh, to the enterprise, and to you know even to large scale service provider space. Um, sure, sure. And so Matt is uh, uniquely positioned to be able to talk about a lot of that as the uh, executive director of enterprise strategy. So that's a fantastic title. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, you know, and the reason we're saying that you are world famous is we, you know, part of the things that you've done in the past before Dell, it looks like you came from Intel. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. I yeah. spent almost 10 years there. So 11 years at Dell, 10 years at Intel. Um, what that means is that you're at Intel at the same time as the, uh, as, as Pat Gelsinger. I sure was. Yeah. In fact, he was, he was a member of, I guess, what you would call their executive leadership team at the time. And he worked uh, quite closely and ran for some time Intel's innovation center um, at Intel Labs. And so I, I worked quite a bit with them and I actually ran um, a number of programs as sort of the liaison between Intel IT and the Intel Labs. Um, and the first one, Big one that I did was actually a um, the first large scale trials of XDSL technology, you know, so high speed bandwidth to the home, and uh, got to you know take uh, support calls from Andy Grove and Craig Barrett, and probably from Pat at some point. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Oh, our, I mean, our, so our research had it that you were his, um, you know, his boss. Maybe it was a Matrix uh, type situation or whatever, where you had had mentored him. To help, you know, kind of push him <laughs> on the right. way towards being executive leader. So, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I was his coach. In, yeah, in fact, <laughs> so yeah, he's, life coach. He's got a lot of he's got a lot of awesome stories. Uh, he was telling one one time about his his um, negotiation uh, with um, Steve Jobs about uh, FireWire and USB and where all that was going at, when in his time at Intel. Um, really cool stuff over there, and of course, they're doing cool things at the data center today. So, um, it's a pretty neat background on on both of your behalves. Yeah, well, thanks. It was a lot of fun, and and we did a lot of cool things way ahead of their time, so it was a lot of fun. 
So, um, you know, I'm going to kind of dive right into it real quick because it relates to you. One of the things that we saw at Dell World 2015, I always get the, yeah. get, I get the years confused. So the Dell World that just happened like two or three weeks ago, um, one of the big announcements is that Dell's um, patents were up something to the effect of, uh, and, you know, correct me, it was like 27%. Um, yeah. And so you've now issued over 8,000 patents as an organization. Yeah, I mean the the the, uh, the thing that that I think people don't give Dell a, a lot of credit for is is our innovation engine. And so, um, you know, Dell's always been a, a driver of innovation, and innovation takes a lot of forms. And I think we'll talk a lot more about this uh, on the show. But uh, you know, we we continue to to push the the bounds on the client side with. Uh, new technology, new form factors, you know, zero-edge design on laptops. Um, you saw, and we'll talk a little bit more about what we're doing in IoT, um, and, of course, all of the cool things that we're doing in the data center. So, you know, Dell, I, I think at times, doesn't get enough respect for uh, the innovation that we bring to the industry and, frankly, the recognition of um, innovation outside of patents and in business models and sort of being a challenger and disruptive force to the status quo and helping move IT forward more quickly than, than it would maybe without Dell um, uh, there uh, pushing it along and working to really democratize um, a lot of technology that for, for a time, and we'll talk a lot more about this I think on the show, but for a time um, was locked up in a glass house somewhere um, where your average enterprise or average IT guy didn't have access to it. So I hope we can spend some time talking about that because we really see ourselves as that, that democratizing force um, and one that's you know, focused on getting technology into as many hands as possible. And so one of the reasons I brought up the patents, and we are going to kind of dig in more into that, um, when, when I started one of my first businesses back in the, in the 90s somewhere, um, I actually signed up as a Dell reseller and was doing a bunch of stuff around that. And so I came to the EBC and uh, did a bunch of things. And I walked down a hallway and I, I, I distinctly remember the hallway was literally littered with patents on the wall. It was like, oh, it's, it's one of the showcase things is, hey, look at all these patents that we have. Um, you know, and it was like hundreds on, you know, rows from floor to ceiling type stuff. So we were, as part of our research for you, we actually found a couple of patents uh, in your yeah. background and you know, pretty cool stuff. I have no idea what upper layer protocol selection does. Um, the uh, so selecting iSCSI target for automating initiator booting seems a little bit more clear to, to me from my world. Um, is this stuff that you did while you were at Intel or are these, these Dell related and part of your career there? No, no, those are actually Dell related. So, um, when I came over to Dell, um, from Intel, I'd been working on iSCSI for some time. Um, Intel was a very early proponent and innovator in the iSCSI space, as was Dell. And so when I came over, we were, we were really driving um, sort of iSCSI into ubiquity. And of course, you guys, have stored, you know, guys closely related with storage, you'll remember Equalogic, Intranza, uh, Left Hand, there were a number of innovative um, platforms in the iSCSI space coming out, and uh, Dell was one of the, the the forces behind the development of of the ecosystem. Um, ultimately, you know, of the protocol and and the 
the, the sort of innovation around it. And a lot of the patents that I have come from my period as a uh, as the strategy guy for the Dell storage organization. Um, and for example, the upper layer protocol selection was there was a time when we when um, we were talking about using uh, uh, some innovations like uh, data center Ethernet, lossless Ethernet, um, and um, instead of using TCP as as the upper layer protocol in a TCP IP network, um, the notion was utilizing UDP as a way of reducing latency and overhead associated with uh, iSCSI traffic. So that was that one. The other one is it was a popular notion that you could uh, re, uh, remotely boot servers via iSCSI, which we actually did quite a bit of, um, and uh, leveraging what was known as ISNS, which was a naming service for iSCSI targets and initiators to uh, sort of boot and automatically discover the uh, the target for booting a uh, a remote image. So there's a number of other patents actually that are still pending that all sort of float in the same area around iSCSI and, and iSCSI management. And it, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting tie. Um, so when you were working on all this iSCSI stuff, and maybe you still are to some point, um, were you familiar at all? You mentioned a bunch of other iSCSI players and you know, kind of everybody trying to, to make that the next big uh, fiber channel at, the, at that point. Um, do you remember Elocity being one of those startups in the uh, iSCSI space? I, I believe I do, and I, I believe I, I remember there was a time uh, when, frankly, EMC was there, IBM was there, and all of uh, you know scores of startups. And there's a lab up at UNH, uh, the University of New Hampshire, and so we would gather. And this was when I was at Intel. Actually, we would gather up um, at UNH in the cold winter um, and and do plug fests. And there were a number of different uh, vendors. So yeah, I, I remember all of them. Well, our uh, our illustrious leader, which I think you may or may not have met yet, but uh, Chad was a a function of our acquisition of Velocity. And um, if I again, if I remember correctly, I think that was a pretty big uh, that was a big they were a big iSCSI play at the time. So um, maybe I said it wrong. So you know, we uh, there's a lot of things that happened in the past that we like to cover. Uh, one of those is uh, this week in tech history, and uh, we're not going to roll back the clock too far here, but. Um, I think Brent some, dug up again something. It, people probably think that this is intentional. Uh, we dig up this week in tech and uh, try to find something that's relevant you know, to our business. And then it turns out that almost always, we're at like 99% hit rate. What we talk about with this week in tech aligns with our, our uh, guest. It's not nearly as intentional. Last week, we were talking to Jeremy Edberg. Turned out he'd actually spoke with uh, the person who was the subject of this week in tech. So go ahead, Brent. Yes, thank you. All right. So um, apart from uh, the, the, the cool history, I love This Week in Tech History because it gives me an opportunity to actually be on the podcast. So, <laughs> uh, But This Week in Tech History, November 2009, Bill Gates demonstrates the functional prototype of a tablet PC. Uh, Microsoft claims that the tablet PC will represent the next major evolution in PC design and functionality. Um, it did not take off initially until Apple introduced the iPad in 2010. Um, so I guess my question to you is, is Matt, you know, Dell obviously is a huge player in the consumer space in both the PC and tablet business. 
do you think that do you think that this is actually true? Has the tablet taken over what the PC does, and is it more ubiquitous than the PC? I, I would I, argue, yeah. but I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I don't think. I don't think anybody would argue that the tablet has replaced the PC in any form or fashion. And this is a, I mean, I think this is a huge fallacy in our industry that we always, we always talk about one thing replacing another. It's sort of like disc replacing tape. You know, there's still a lot of tape out there, despite the fact that it's not growing all that much. It's still out there. Um, but things are rarely fully replaced. And in this case, I don't think it's even remotely replaced. Tablets, phones are awesome consumption devices, but they're really poor productivity devices. And to make them really good productivity devices, they all of a sudden look like laptops again or, you know, notebooks. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what, what we're seeing is not necessarily replacement cycles or, or you know, a, a, a removal of one form factor in, in place with another. It, instead, we're seeing sort of a sub-segmentation and profusion of different uh, types of devices or form factors of devices. One of the most popular is actually convertibles, right? So a convertible either being something that has a, a tablet-like form factor um, uh, that uh, um, removes from a keyboard or flips around. Uh, like my daughter has, has a Dell um, convertible um, that actually flips over, so the clamshell goes in both directions. Um, and it can be used like a tablet, or it can be used like a PC. She mostly uses it like a PC because she mostly uses it for um, homework, but she also runs Netflix on it and uses that clamshell in reverse as a stand, stands it up and watches movies. So I, I, don't, think that, uh, I don't think that replacement um, is, is, a, is a notion. I think that the, the idea that it's a major evolution in design, absolutely, in the same way the phablet, right, the phone tablet has really been um, probably something that's been far more successful than the tablet itself. And oddly enough, um, if you look back in Dell history, in Dell device history, we actually had a phone um, that was called the Streak 5, I believe. And that was a 5-inch form factor tablet. Um, and it was derided at the time as this thing that wouldn't fit in your pocket. Lo and behold, years and years later, um, you have Samsung Notes and, um, and uh, iPhone uh, Maxis or whatever the heck they call those things. Um, as a major form factor in the marketplace. So it's just a, I think it's a, an evolution is the true part. The replacement part is certainly not something that I, that I see happening. Um, I, I see we're going to have a continued evolution of form factors. So, and we're going to stay as Dell on the forefront of that evolution. So I had the Streak 5, and I just want you, uh, you know, I was a huge supporter. I got it like the day it came out. I wanted it so bad and used it. The only, my only complaint about it was over time uh, because it wasn't updated. You know, there was a time there in Android, yeah, yeah. in the Android space where the manufacturers were not keeping up with the release cycle um, that Google was doing. And, and Dell was uh, just as guilty as HTC who basically unreleased themselves out of business. Um, you know, it, it was a fantastic device. I loved it. I actually ended up having two because one of them I sat on um, <laughs> and uh, snapped it right in half. But I love that device. I frankly, the only reason I ever gave it up was because it was getting out of date from an OS perspective. 
Yeah, but I mean, I, you, you think about that, and everyone at one point said, you know, you, the tablet's going to take over, and then all of a sudden the phablet is outpacing the tablet. So these predictions are, are usually more marketing than reality, um, and I think the reality is, is that the way people use technology and the times that they use technology are changing as other elements of the ecosystem change around it. So with more ubiquitous, high-speed internet access, of course, you know, if you're in New York City riding on a bus or a train or something, you're going to want to spend that time being, you know, entertained or, or, or on a call or whatever. And so, yeah, uh, consumption devices that are small, light, and thin make a lot of sense. Uh, but when you get to the office, more likely than not, if you're going to be typing a couple hundred, you know, hundred words per minute and cranking through some legal documents, that's really hard to do on a, you know, a tablet and a virtual keyboard. So, yeah, I think it's just a matter of a sort of constant change as, as frankly, as consumer and business people's habits shift and change with technology in a changing business landscape. And so you guys, one of the other things that were mentioned over at uh, Dell World was, uh, I, again, I was shocked, was uh, a roughly 35% saturation of the market in China. Um, I even heard a comment, I think, about doubling down on Dell uh, after they went private. Um, is there, do you, are you familiar at all? Maybe this isn't your area. Um, we should just call somebody else if, that, if that's okay. Um, where, what's the saturation like from an endpoint device for these productivity devices in China? Um, is it, what is their kind of um, device of choice? Is it the same as the U.S.? Well, I think you, you see a lot of different patterns. And again, all of these patterns are driven by sort of the, the sort of lifestyle that's inherent in an individual culture. Um, like a, a great example, you know, in Japan, most internet consumption is done via the phone. And, uh, and that's because a lot of people are constantly on the go and maybe live in a very small area without a lot of room for a PC or even a laptop, right? So um, I think in China, you, you have, you know, you have what? A, 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 I don't know how many billion people are in China. It's a lot, right? It's a huge country. Um, and uh, um, it's still, to some degree, a developing country, right? So you have a lot of, white space um, available, I don't think you're reaching true saturation, although I think, you know, in the cities, particularly in the, the east of the country, um, you have a lot of technology penetration, and frankly, you know, it's one of the ro most robust markets, both for uh, client devices, but more importantly, it's one of the largest and fastest growing um, server markets, as an example, in the world. In fact, it's the second largest in the world. Um, so, you know, China is booming, um, and, and China, uh, the usage of technology continues to, to penetrate. Um, we still have a lot of white space in lots of emerging markets, and I think, you know, as, as Michael's fond of saying, I think, you know, there's a couple, there's a billion or, or more uh, piece, connected PCs in the world. Um, there's quite a few more phones, but those are not all, you know, one for one, right? You've got a lot of people who are not yet connected to the internet, and and there's a lot of companies, Dell, um, and and frankly, a lot of the web tech companies that are very interested in bringing that technology to those um, developing countries and those people, because 
you know, it's, it's our belief that technology and access to information is what sets you free as a human being. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of white space. There's a lot of saturation in, in the, in the West, in, especially in North America and, and in Europe. Um, and I think you see that particularly in the smartphone market, but yeah, lots of, there's lots of connectivity and lots of computing still to be deployed in the world. Um, and our goal is to deploy as much of it as humanly possible because, again, we see technology as really a liberating force. Yeah, thanks, Matt. You know, that's a, it's a good synopsis of kind of, uh, you know, you guys are huge in the consumer space and, and especially the, the PC and tablet market. Um, you know, kind of along those same lines, I think that the PC, I think all three of us are generally the same age um, and, it, and we're probably influenced by technology um, in the same way early on with just, you know, basic computers. Um, I know Brian and I were, but my question for you is, you know, in addition to understanding the, the technology that, that in the world and that Dell provides, um, we want to understand a bit about, about you and, and kind of what drives you. So what got you started in tech? I mean, if I look at your, right, this is, this is LinkedIn, but, um, your, your bachelor's for instance, is in political science and, uh, English literature. So yeah. what, what got you from that to, you know, where you well, are today? Well, you could tell he's well spoken. So you, he was he he wanted to be something. He wanted to be a politician for sure. But go ahead, Matt. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know it's really funny that you mentioned that. It's it's a it's it's a it's a. I I look back on it as a funny story. But sometimes when I tell this story, people go kind of gasp. So I'll, I'll tell it to you guys real quick. I graduated from college in uh, what was it ninety five, right? So um, we. It was just at the tail end of, of another smaller recession than the one we experienced a few years back. But it was kind of dark days for people graduating. What it was on the upswing. I, luckily, I feel I feel fortunate that we that I entered the world in that upswing. Um, but uh, I moved out to Arizona uh, with my girlfriend at the time. She was a, a, a grad student at ASU, um, and I actually got a job not as a politician, but as a as a elections official. Uh, for Maricopa County, that was that was going to be my job, and fate uh, intervened. Luckily, because um, I don't know if if a life in uh, you know public service is great, but I don't know if a life of a elections official would be quite as exciting as my life has become. But uh, it, oddly enough, uh, there was a death in the family, and um, and I had to go I had to go back and take care of my family, and there was a policy with government jobs that that you had to accept and start on the start date that you said. And I said, and they were like super apologetic and, I, you know, totally understanding, but they couldn't do anything about it. So I was like, that's fine. No problem. I'll come back. So I spent a, about a month back at home and then I came back to, to Arizona and I had a, a voicemail and it was somebody from Intel. I'd registered with a temp um, agency and somebody called me up and said, Hey, Hey, uh, we've got a job doing account ads, moves and changes. Um, for Banyan Vines and Deck and um, DeckNet and all these other accounts. If you guys remember back in the day, you had a bazillion logins for different systems, Novell. And so I joined Intel as the lowliest of low IT people, which was processing ads, moves, and changes for accounts. Um, and luckily, I had a lot of experience with technology. My father was a stockbroker. And I had a computer in 1980, which was 
fairly early for, you know, the average uh, kid growing up. Uh, I took programming as a, as a kid, basic programming, and then some other things. And I worked a lot with technology. Uh, oddly enough, I worked on a salvage boat that used um, some fairly sophisticated sonar systems and remote-operated vehicles. And I just knew my way around technology. I just happened to not be interested in learning about it in college. But I took to it, and I pretty rapidly moved up through the ranks in Intel IT um, and uh, did some really cool things. I mentioned the XDSL trials with Intel Labs, and we worked with a lot of startups in the Valley that were, uh, that were, that were called Celex or competitive telco companies. And I just sort of moved my way up through there and then ultimately moved into the product space as a technical marketing guy. What really you know, gets me excited is working on new technologies and, you know, getting that technology distributed as, as quickly as possible to the most number of people. I'm, I'm a little bit altruistic that way in that I truly believe technology, you know, in the right hands um, is, is a liberating force, is how people can access information, get educated, um, you know, interact with one another organize one another um, to, to, for the greater good. So uh, that's what I get excited about, and that's why I, you know, frankly love um, working at Dell, because Dell is that democratizing force in the marketplace, and we have a history of doing that. So, so it's, a weird, it's a weird path, but it's a path nonetheless. Yeah, no, it's a great story, and, and the fact that Arizona's in there and, uh, and ASU, it's all good. good uh, you know, I'm in Arizona, too, so I, I can... I can uh, Get down with that story. So, speaking of technology and yeah. uh, you know democratizing it, and you know just kind of making it more pervasive, um, you've you, you've you've moved to Dell and you're running the Enterprise Strategy Group. What's yeah. keeping you busy today? I mean, there's so much stuff in uh, uh, just in, in IT and in technology in general. Um, yeah, you've got yeah, to, yeah. You can't do it all, right? So, what are you focused on uh, primarily at Dell? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of as a strategy. You know, strategy guys do one of two things. One big part of what we do is business planning, and obviously, you know, planning the business is pretty exciting right now. Um, I think that goes without saying. Um, but on the technology and sort of, you know, forward casting side of of my job. Um, you know, the, the IT, the enterprise IT landscape has changed so much over the last decade with particularly virtualization, um, you know, different forms of computing, cloud computing. I don't like these buzzwords very much, but uh, um, anyhow, the, the thing that I think is most interesting right now has very little to do with technology and instead has to do with business model innovation that's being fueled by technology. And so I think that, you know, we keep talking about things like big data and, and every other buzzword you could come up with as an, as a, as an industry. Um, and what I think we do as a disservice to our, our customers and, and, you know, the, the public at large in talking about the technologies is we lose a lot of the context as to why. I'm super fond of Sullivan's Law. Lewis Sullivan was an architect, and he coined that phrase, form follows function, right? And to me, um, the function that the form follows or the technology follows is really the business and the business model. 
And I think that a lot of our customers, the world, are facing not technology disruption, but truly business model disruption. You have technology as an enabling force, but frankly, it's the business models that people are building and innovating that are driving tremendous amount of change in business. It just happens to be that technology is the fuel um, that is driving that business model disruption. So I'm spending a lot of time on, look, how do we put in, in plain terms the dynamic that's going on? And, you know, I, I, I've talked a lot about this notion of a big digital wave, right? You have all of these new companies that are utilizing technology to innovate around legacy business models. And I know it's an overused analogy, but Uber, right? Uber and transportation, Netflix and entertainment. There's billions of examples, right? These are all technology-fueled business model innovations that are disrupting traditional businesses. And if traditional businesses don't react, then they'll end up like Blockbuster, gone. Um, but that isn't the way that it has to be, right? If we get the right technology into the right hands and the understanding about how to use that technology to innovate around the business, I think we'll end up with a really robust and competitive environment that's going to benefit all of us. So that's really a, a key area for me and, and frankly for Dell is, is not necessarily talking about the big buzzwords, but instead trying to paint a picture for what a business could look like when using technology in new and, and innovative ways. And to me, that's the most important thing ahead for the industry is stop talking about buzzwords and start talking about how to use technology to really impact change in the business or, frankly, in government, so on and so forth. Yeah, you bring up a, a, a great point. And, and frankly, um, stalking you online, your messaging is very consistent. Um, the digital wave has come up, you know, uh, 2014 Dell World, uh, one five ten. You talked about the the, the digital wave, and then uh, one thing you brought up was like hating <laughs> the word big data because that's just a it's just a bad way of describing necessarily what it is. Um, but you said, which reaffirmed uh, our guest from last week, Bill Schmarzo, who's our CTO of analytics and um, within EMC. Basically, you have to have you don't need a big data strategy, you need a business strategy that incorporates big data. So that could mean, or th that could flow into any technology or any buzzword. Um, again, you said start with uh, a, a business plan, start with an idea, and we'll figure out the technology to support that after the fact. And I think that um, that's what's great about both the companies that, that you and I work for is uh, we can enable, but first we need to to start with what are we trying to solve from a business perspective? Yeah, I, I think we, you know, the one, the one shortcoming of technologists like myself is sometimes we get overexcited by technology uh, and we lose the forest for the trees. So, yeah, I, 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 and, I and frankly, I think that's, that's one reason why Dell as a company doesn't always get get the credit around innovation, et cetera, is that we try to use really pragmatic language and a pragmatic approach to putting that technology in the hands of as many people as possible. And in order to do that, talking about data science and 
Hadoop and unstructured data and, you know, and, and those are, e you know, those are easier terms. You get further down into it talking about metadata and, you know, star schemas and columnar and blah, blah, blah. You know, when you get there, you've just lost 99% of the world. And that's not a real wise strategy if your goal is to get that technology in, in the hands of that 99% of the world. And so, so you keep bringing up this, uh, this thing and it's uh, democratizing of the technology um, and you want to talk about it. So I'm going to let you, um, what, <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's like, you're, you're like, you Kanye my microphone at this point. Um, <laughs> what is, oh, tell me what it means. I mean, I, 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 I hear it and it kind of sort of makes sense, but uh, go ahead and define it for you. What does that mean uh, to you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, to me, it's, you know, we've always, we've always had a, a set of mantras and the words we've used have changed, uh, you know, um, but we really want to make technology simple, super capable and affordable. And I'm sure if someone, someone out there who I know hears that they're going to laugh, that's, that's something, a, a, a set of, of words that we used, I don't know, eight, nine years ago in talking about storage as an example, right? It was, it was early in a wave of, of, of a focus on simplifying the management. And I think all of us did that. Dell did that. Um, you know, NetApp had been known for that EMC with, you know, things like VNX. Um, you know, there was a, a, a need to take the mystery out of some technologies, networking, storage, you know, virtualization, to make them more accessible and easier to understand for your average mid-market IT person. And, you know, that's our, that's our history is to go find areas where either because of complexity or cost, um, it's difficult for an average person to gain access. You know, our, our early area that I think is a great illustration of that is workstations. It used to be that a Sun workstation costs $50,000. Um, and, you know, if you look at the market today, um, you know, a workstation costs a whole lot less than that. Um, and there's a real sort of open systems um, environment for workstations, for different types of people that need workstations, people that do video editing, people doing CAD CAM stuff, so on and so forth. So, the, the notion of democratization is really around that simplifying, giving people a great value for money, capable, and of course affordable, right? Taking something that used to be only accessible to those who had a whole lot of money um, and bringing the, those features functions down to a, a level that, that's affordable for more folks. And that's why I think you see Dell, it, you know, we're known as a sort of a company that operates in the mid market, um, and we're very, very successful operating there. And so, so if I get this right, then obviously you're saying there's something that starts out where only certain people can do it, and that's kind of the nature of it, and it's very expensive to do unless you do it because of scale and other things. Uh, yeah, yeah. And over time, as it becomes something that becomes a bit more approachable, um, you're specialized in essentially making it so approachable and consumable that the what you might call average or the overall, you know, the, the middle of the bell curve can consume it as easily as possible at the best price possible. Um, 
And so let's look at what's going on today. And when you look at these things like um, you're talking, I mean, you know, again, Facebook, right? You, they build their own data centers and they cool their own data sure. centers and they put flywheels and on their generators and they, they do all of it. Um, you, you know, you guys are heavily involved in things like this. And, um, you know, what are you guys doing that looks like what Facebook's doing, but deploying it where, um, maybe yeah. I can consume it for my house or something, or maybe my business. Um, yeah, I no, that, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, you know, and, and, and to some extent, you know, there, there's a, there's quite a bit of a schism occurring in, in the market. You have, very large hyperscale data centers that are that are really innovating around business models and truly doing some amazing computer science, right? You know, there's more computer science being done, it seems, at Google than there is at your average tier one research uh, uh, university, right? It, I mean, they're doing amazing things. Um, Dell, you know, was an early innovator in that hyperscale space. Um, and so let's talk about a few things uh, there. We, we saw an interesting dynamic in the sort of mid-2000s um, with companies. At the time, you know, it was a company called Yahoo and, frankly, AOL at the time. They were, you know, they were building businesses and business models that operated on pretty razor-thin economics, right, to deliver, you know, banner ads, other things, right? And they needed to do it at a at a pretty amazing cost. And so they started looking at the, the areas of waste in a data center. And at the time, those areas of waste were footprint, um, power and cooling, so on and so forth. So we started to see the advent of these hyper-dense systems, right? And they were real simple. It was a 2U12 drive server, which frankly is ubiquitous today, right? But one of our most popular platforms in our portfolio today is the 730XD. It's a 2U system that's chock full of drives. It's, it's sort of the, the, the grandson of those early designs. But that was, you know, those, those designs were kind of, uh, uh, you know, laughable today, right, relative to what we're, what we're doing and what, you know, others are doing in that space. Um, you know, we've gotten to the point where we're not innovating at the system level. We've gone past innovating at the rack level. Now we're innovating at the sort of total data center level. And we're doing, doing things like modular data centers where we're packing, you know, massive amounts of compute into a very small footprint, and we're operating that footprint of compute storage networking at, uh, at power efficiency levels that, that we're that most people find hard to believe. Um, and we can talk a little bit about what those numbers are. But th that approach, frankly, though, is one where we've, you know, looked at things like shared infrastructure. Um, you know, instead of deploying multiple fabrics, multiple fans, multiple power supplies to all these individual systems, we've built more and more modular systems, not blade-like, which is a solved a different problem, but our FX2, frankly, our FX2 platform is an outgrowth of um, of the, the sort of modular and shared infrastructure lessons that we that we learned in those hyperscale data centers so we're taking those learnings and waterfalling them down into the portfolio vertex another example of that for small businesses um, you know a shared infrastructure system that really at the end of the day 
follows the design principles of those large-scale data centers, which is, you know, a shared storage system um, shared amongst a number of different um, uh, compute platforms. And in that case, we use PCI Express as a as a low-cost, high-speed fabric to interconnect all of it. And so did you, I mean, like specifically with Vertex, which is interesting, um, and, you know, frankly, it looks... It looks very small to medium business. It could certainly take over a data center or like a branch office. Um, but there's there are things about Vertex that doesn't necessarily scale into um, either modern architectures or into um, you know certain types of larger data centers, maybe small to medium sure. enterprise things like that, um, based on scale and management domain and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you you guys take the learning? It looks to me like what happened one night was y'all closed the doors on Dell and the MDC snuck in and Vertex snuck into a room. And what came out of that, like nine months later was F- FX2. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, so yeah. Like, you know, yeah. go ahead. That, no, that's a really, that's a pretty apt description. I mean, they were both, they were both being developed at the same time. Um, but I, you, you do, you're spot on. Um, they all come from the same principles of, of, shared infrastructure, and frankly, there's some other aspects to it, right, which is you start to see, look, Blade Systems came into vogue roughly around that same time that I'm talking about, 2005, 2007. They started to grow quite a bit. And the prime reason for a a Blade System was not actually density and was not actually, you know, reduce cost, et cetera. It was actually all about manageability. And that's important, incredibly important. But what, we, what, what you find actually is that a, a, a sort of hybrid between a rack-level system and a blade-level system with shared infrastructure is actually a really good balance. So the designs you see in these hyperscale data centers are modular but not blade-like. And so Vertex and... FX2 are not blades. They kind of look like blades, but aren't exactly, and they kind of behave a little bit like racks, but a little bit more like... I mean, it's kind of cutting the middle between a more, what we think is a more intelligent modular design, and all of that is true. It's, it's, the, it's the NDC and, frankly, hyperscale design principles put into uh, mainstream compute use cases. Um, and and they're not directly applicable. I'll give you an example. We had we have a line and had a line of products called PowerEdge C, and a lot of those actually over-indexed on density to the point that that uh, um, an average customer with the kind of power and cooling capability available to them could only fit about three or four of these hypertense systems into a rack. They just couldn't get enough power into the thing, right? An, an MDC is delivering one full megawatt of, of, of compute, right? It consumes a megawatt. That's a lot um, for a little footprint. Um, and so you have to take the inspiration of the, of the MDC or the hyperscale data center, and you have to think intelligently about, okay, there's a lot of good around manageability, density, flexibility, flexibility to grow, you got to look at it a little bit differently in the reality of an average data center. And that is ultimately what FX2 represents is 
sort of uh, uh, hybridization of modular and monolithic, you know, blade and rack server, along with a lot of cool shared management and shared infrastructure principles that reduce overall cost and make for a more modular and easier to scale solution. And that's what we were shooting for with FX2. And, and so I spent a ton of time, uh, at probably the most amount of time at Dell World um, on one specific thing. I spent around FX2 because I was really trying to consume all the things it could do. Uh, and so I want to back up again. When we talk about these problem, these modern problems you're trying to solve, uh, cloud, yeah. cloud native applications, hyperscale, yep. things like that. But for the traditional um, small to medium enterprise, maybe even low end, you know, full size enterprise, um, where you know, where would you, you know, what kind of problems do you see FX2 solving? Do you see it? I mean, do you, is it like, is it a great for OpenStack? Do you say, hey, everybody's Hadoop yeah. should be on it? Um, do you want to put it into object storage? Like, where are those those modern application yeah. stacks? What are you solving with FX2 or what would yeah, you propose? That's a, that's a really, really great question. So if, if you go look at, at like a pitch, and fr frankly, I'll give this pitch here at Gartner Data Center um, in early December, you know, our promise, our, our, you know, our goal and promise to our customers is to try to build a platform that synthesizes traditional IT architectures with new IT architectures, right? We don't think it's a good idea. And so when I say new IT architectures, I'm talking about those uh, sort of cloud-native or scalable, composable, microservices-based, you, you know, put your buzzword in there, new architectures, right? And then you still have a raft of traditional architectures. And frankly, virtualization was the, the force that was, you know, allowing us to drain the cost and complexity out of traditional IT design. So if I, if I take FX2 and sort of, you know, look at it and the modularity and flexibility that it delivers, common platform, I can fill, fill it full of, of compute nodes, and I can connect it to a traditional storage array right, like one of our SC compelling products or, frankly, anybody's um, array, right? And I can take and load a more traditional um, uh, hypervisor environment, a VM, a, a standard vSphere environment or whatever, um, and I can run my traditional IT applications and manage them on that platform, get great density, get great manageability, get all of the cool stuff of converged infrastructure on that platform. At the same time, you, you, I think if you spent some time with the FX2 platform, you would have noticed that the FX2 platform also has storage modules that go along with it, sleds that uh, um, we actually had a code name for called Stash. You know, it was a stash where you put all your stuff. And there are very dense um, storage sleds that slide in to the slots in the FX2. One of the workloads that we see being quite popular with that are actually sort of big data analytics platforms where you don't need shared storage, right? What you really want is access to raw disk, and you're going to operate that on that access to raw disk in a scalable fashion, right? So we think FX2 is a, a, a physical manifestation of that, of that promise of creating a common platform that synthesizes traditional IT and new IT and allows you to deploy those two architectural constructs on a common infrastructure platform and frankly on a common 
uh, management platform, right, with the tooling that we provide with OpenManage, um, and of course all of the cool integration work that we've done between our hardware and, for example, vSphere. If you look at the plugins, I hate the word plugin because I think it it makes minimal what actually uh, VMware has allowed folks like Dell to do within the context of their management environment. Those plugins are wicked powerful at managing infrastructure in the context of what the average IT guy is doing, right, which is spending a ton of time in vSphere managing workloads. So that's the notion of, of FX2 is being a synthesizer of two radically different architectures, but on a common platform. So speaking of vSphere, uh, that, that uh, got me thinking about how FX2, uh, in my mind, could be a good platform for something like vSAN. Has that been, yeah, have yeah, you guys been doing testing with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the notion of, of, of the FX2 platform with the ability to mix and match different types of compute platforms along with storage modules is that software-defined storage solutions are ideal for, for that platform, right? You can, um, I mentioned big data and things like Hadoop or, or other big data platforms, but frankly, any software-defined storage solution that scales horizontally, horizontally leveraging, you know, commodity x86 architectures can run very well on that platform. Today, we actually have done a lot of work with, with VMware on what at the time was called Evo Rail. Um, Evo Rails actually deployed um, more commonly on a different platform, um, but is has been um, designed or has been tested on FX2. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, we have a lot of examples of customers not necessarily taking an appliance approach, but instead deploying software-defined architectures that they've either designed themselves or bought um, on the open market on the FX2 platform. We have so a let's, ton of web tech go, go ahead. Yeah, let's take that in the, uh, the next step further, right? Um, uh, Evo Rail. So let's go Evo Rack, which was renamed yep. Evo SDDC. Um, it's, yep. it's, it's our understanding that Dell was, was very highly involved with um, beta testing that with VMware. So can you tell us more about, about that process and your involvement there? Yeah, I mean, VMware is, is an incredibly important partner. And, uh, you know, they came to us and asked if we would, if we would work closely with them on the development of, of the Evo platforms overall. And so we've been working very closely with VMware, um, you know, and, and frankly, VMware is an open ecosystem, right? So they've been working with Dell, they've been working with others um, on development of these software-defined data center um, solutions. And so we, one among many, have been working with VMware to develop designs of which FX2 is an important part of the larger scale um, uh, you know, Evo rack designs that we've been looking at. So, yeah, I mean, our relationship with VMware goes way, 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 way back. Um, and frankly, you know, you're talking about replacement and, you know, did tablets kill um, uh, PCs? You know, there was a time when people believed that virtualization was going to kill the server market. And, and, you know, because obviously if you went from 1 to 1 to 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 or 1 to 50, you know, everyone thought the market was going to collapse under it, and people pulled back 
other vendors pulled back for fear that they were going to, you know, you know, blow up the market. Well, actually, the exact opposite happened. And why Dell put the pedal to the metal was we saw it as an opportunity to, to sort of reduce the overall cost of computing and drive forward. So we've been a partner with and very excited about all of the innovations that VMware have brought to the market because their whole, the whole force around VMware has all been about creating efficiency in the data center, right? It started as draining the overall inefficiency of one-to-one deployments, but now has gone to simplifying it and making it easy to manage and deploying software-defined architecture. So we, we see that VMware and Dell are, you know, chocolate and peanut butter, right? We're the Reese's cup of, of infrastructure. Mm, um, delicious. So we're, yeah, delicious. So, you know, they're an incredibly important partner, and we've worked incredibly closely with them for, for years. Um, that being said, we also know that, that the greatest thing about both Dell and VMware is our focus on open ecosystems, right? And so uh, our focus is on driving, building open ecosystems, and uh, you know, we'll continue to do that from this day forward. You just, you actually just reminded me, Matt, of uh, the fact that when I was actually a Dell customer as a consumer, um, mm-hmm. and it, this wasn't actually that long ago, that my Dell account rep literally probably every quarter is like, dude, you need some VMware. Dude, you need some VMware over and over. And he beat me you know, <laughs> he beat me up with it. And eventually I'm like, fine, I'll do some VMware. Uh, and the next thing I know, I you know have a like a 95% virtual environment and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. and here's my career. And I, you know, I work for a company that, you know, has a good relationship with VMware as well. Um, yeah. And so it's, I mean, quite ironic, right, that Dell is the one who pushed me into VMware. It wasn't VMware calling me and asking me to do it. Well, you know, what's interesting about it. I go back to the IT thing. It, I saw it. I remember, gosh, I can't, I used VMware when I was at, in, at Intel, actually, as a, a, to virtualize a desktop so I could use Linux and access remotely. But that's a, I won't go into that. But when I saw vMotion, I almost, you know, I almost passed out with excitement because I remember being that poor sap carrying a pager around at night, you know, dealing with downtime and patching and all that crap, right? And I saw it and said, oh my gosh, when I was at Dell, I said, holy, holy crap, this is going to be huge, huge. And there were people saying, I believe that 5% of workloads will be virtualized. I'm like, dude, no, like, Every workload is going to be virtualized because if you've ever had to carry a pager, this is magic. This is absolute magic. And I, you know, I was a proponent. There were many others like me that saw it and said, holy mackerel, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen because no more is there downtime associated with, you know, hardware patches. You just V-motion that workload across there and you go do it. We can do this during the day. No one's got to stay up late at night. We can drink beer on the weekends again. And so I'm going to, I'm going to use this, uh, this democratizing thing again, um, because you, you know, since you taught it to me, I'm going to leverage it. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking again, you've taught us about MDC. Um, you taught us yeah. about FX two. Um, you taught us about, um, how, you know, what vertex and MDC did to cause FX two. Um, now, you know, this, this other thing, DSS, um, yeah. you know, to me, I'm looking at it and, and, and based on what you're telling me, it looks like, you know, Hey, everybody thinks that MDC is cool. You can go out there, you can get a whole data center. It's open air cold. Uh, that's amazing. But 
maybe um, it's super flexible, right? I mean, you can basically cu- highly customize it. But with that comes a cost that not everybody can consume all at one time. Or maybe right. they want to build it themselves. Or maybe this thing just needs to be all software-defined and uh, all all open, right? And so yep. you have this DSS thing. And to me, this looks like the manifestation of you kind of democratizing MDC to a bit and making it more consumable. Um, yeah. No bells, no whistles, no lights, no open manage, uh, you know, any, no, any of that kind of stuff. Um, just a simple, very uh, no frill server that people can stack up and then multiply yeah. at whatever scale their modern application needs. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, look, so there's the there's a manifestation of DSS products, which you're you're seeing as this sort of vanity, what an what an open compute person would call vanity free servers, right? But actually, most of the DCS business is actually on standard Power Edge servers. But so let me step back for a second and go back to that notion of business models and different types of innovation. So if you look at MDC and, frankly, the DCS group that, that birthed MDC that started in 2007, this is a, a group of people that build bespoke data center infrastructure, right? We sit down, we swarm our customers with really smart, the best in the industry, frankly, the guy who ran Facebook's infrastructure for a long time was actually a DCS employee. Um, so we swarm the customer and build exactly what they want. We co-engineer it with them. That's not something that everybody can do. Not everybody has the resources on their side to co-engineer. But a lot of these, mar- these modern architectures and these modern business models demand some degree of customization um, of IT infrastructure platforms to run better, faster, cheaper, whatever they want, faster, cheaper, denser, etc. And so the DSS group has products, yes, and you saw those. But more importantly, the DSS group is actually an embodiment of a new business model. And that new business model is around providing quick-turn semi-customization of, of data center infrastructure. Um, the vanity-free servers are an important aspect of that for certain customers, but some of our largest DSS um, deployments, actually FX2, we made some minor modifications to that platform to satisfy the needs of an incredibly large web-scale uh, customer, not in the U.S., but in a different country, and I can't use their name, but uh, it's all about a new business model that allows us to provide sort of a, a in-between between bespoke and full-volume, um, you know, commodity-off-the-shelf servers. And that's what DSS is all about. Yes, it's manifest in these hyper-dense storage servers like the DSS 7000, but more importantly, it's an engagement model. And the innovation of DSS is more about that business model and the way we interact with our customers and the way we satisfy the needs of that customer, not necessarily the products themselves. So along with the the, the, the vanity-free servers, would it be uh, a fair uh, correlation to say vanity-free networking would be open networking? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and the, the 
I think the Vanity Free, I'm not a, a great fan of, of that because I think, it, you know, it's suggesting that a lot of the cool features built into platforms are all about vanity when, in fact, they're all about simplifying people's lives that might not have the Ph.D. in computer science that uh, you as a one percenter in the, you know, the valley have. So sure. I think it's a little bit, a little bit uh, pejorative. Um, it's more about like who who provides the management tools. Uh, you know, if it's kind of pre-managed or uh, needs to be correct uh, post-managed, right? So yeah, exactly. And so I, the, what what you were getting at um, was was I think absolutely right, which is open networking is another notion of or, or another manifestation of what's happening in this segment that DSS is after, which is um, a lot of people are looking to innovate on these platforms that previously were quite closed, right? The network is probably the last bastion of mainframe design, if you will, very closed, um, incredibly fast, and, and frankly, have gotten so efficient. But at the same time, the systems are closed and the software that runs on them is proprietary and inaccessible, right? So um, the open networking concept is, is one that allows customers, businesses to gain access to the code running on, on, a, on, a, on a switch um, in order to do any number of things, right? So Open networking is kind of a kissing cousin of software-defined networking, which is a kissing cousin of uh, network function. I don't want to say kissing cousin; that's grossing me out. But um, <laughs> you know the the. Um, but anyhow, you get what I'm saying. These are all all interrelated as as ways of creating a more manageable network, right? And and there's commercial versions of that, right? NSX being a great example of a commercial, highly manageable overlay network for virtualized environments. But there's other environments where these guys are operating a web tech environment and managing flows of traffic with things like OpenFlow um, are incredibly important. Designing new security uh, uh, subroutines that run directly on switching hardware. The only way to do that is to have an open platform and networking. And the same customers that are looking for semi-customization of compute platforms are looking for platforms in networking that allow them to do the same level of innovation on networking. So you're right. They are very closely related. And frankly, something we're super proud of um, as, you know, an early, if not the earliest proponent of open networking, you can get any Dell switch and you can run our operating, our NOS, our network operating system, or you can run any number of open networking platforms on that switch. And we're really proud of that because we see that, again, as democratizing access to technology that allows people to innovate. That's what we're about. Yeah, so, it's, I mean, <clears throat> we use the term white box all the time, right? So it's kind of like white box servers, white box um, switches, and you're laying down your own operating environment on top of those Um you know, it's interesting. You guys have you guys have switches that go from what ten to a hundred gigabit, um, yep. and you know any range in between. But uh, I wanted to quickly touch on you, you brought up NSX, which um, you know mm-hmm. we know and love. My it's my understanding that Dell and VMware collaborated um, 
on delivering NSX for some software-defined uh, data center stuff. So do you know what that what that project was or that, that mashup was about? Yeah, yeah. There's actually a number of them um, that we've done in cooperation with VMware and other providers out there. Um, you know, there's one, um, uh, a company called Big Switch, which was an early, you know, an early entrant into the SDN market and currently offering um something they call BCF or uh, Big Cloud Fabric. And in essence, what it provides when coupled with a Dell um, networking switch and VMware NSX is a very manageable physical fabric for, uh, for environments with a lot of dynamic, you know, a lot of dynamic movement or dynamic, a need for dynamic configurability at the physical layer. And over top of that, you have NSX, which provides, you know, a dynamic virtual network management layer. So you sort of get the best of both worlds, an overlay and an underlay network that are highly manageable. Um, and that's what we brought together with Big Switch, Dell's open networking platforms, and VMware NSX is the most manageable large-scale cloud fabric right, both at the virtual level and the physical level. So um, now we're talking about, we've got a, a lot of different things. We're, we're, starting to, we're starting to run out of time here. Uh, one of the other things I really was very interested in finding out about you, for you guys, um, there's a, what I see is a lot of maybe OEM, ODM type stuff that comes out of Dell. Um, obviously, it's not highly advertised as such, but I mean, certainly there's tons of products out there where their first launch to the market is almost exclusively, this seems to happen on Dell. Um, rarely does it happen on uh, HP or even, hey, I've, I've released my software or my storage thing yeah. on, on a Cisco. It seems to always be on Dell. It's a really interesting part for you guys. Um, a lot of uh, custom equipment, uh, even back in EMC's days, uh, you know, I think the first, yeah. I think the first Avamar was a Dell. I'm sure there's a ton of other things, um, but you know, appliances, embedded systems, uh, things yeah. where it's basically somebody else's bezel in your product. You know, what does that business look like to you guys, and how you know how does that how does that become something that Dell's so good at? Yeah, I mean the the the. Oh, the OEM business at Dell is is a multi billion dollar business, and you know it's it's it is the you know the platform of choice, frankly, for a lot of folks who are looking to take software to market in an appliance fashion. Um, and frankly, it's also an en uh, an entry point for um, telco equipment, etc. Right, that's running on x eighty six systems. So um, that that's a very long-standing old business. You mentioned uh, the work we did with EMC. Um, uh, we do the same with any number of customers out there. Um, and frankly, it's, a, it's another sort of um, business model. I keep coming back to this notion of a business model. Uh, you know, DCS business model, bespoke infrastructure, DSS semi-custom infrastructure for a buying populace that's looking for some degree of customization. OEM is another sort of riff on that different business model, right? A lot of these customers are looking for um, a different level of system stability. I mean, imagine if you develop a software load and you want to deploy it and you want to have a, uh, a platform that you know is going to be stable for the next five years. That's not your average x86 platform, right? It's going to get refreshed 
and replaced by a new model every 18 to 24 months. So we've done things in that business to add stability to the supply chain for these customers or provide custom BIOS integration so that they can run a, um, a custom ASIC that does um, video compression. You know, there's any number of examples of custom integration work that we facilitate through the OEM group. It's just maybe a little bit on the flip side of the DSS. Rather than hyper-rapid turns and customization, small customizations, these are more um, fundamental customizations of our platforms to allow people to run high-speed firewalls, video compression, video surveillance platforms, firewalls, you know, like you name it, people are running it on Dell. And our innovation, yes, we've got lots of patents um, and we have lots of technology innovation and invention going on, but the thing that, that I think we really innovate around and, and do it better than anybody and, and quicker than anybody is business models. We develop and deploy business models within the context of Dell quicker than anybody on Earth. And that's why we were first with DCS into that fully bespoke model with uh, in 2007. I mean, we've that's what we do is we build business models that democratize IT and satisfy the needs directly of our customers. And so, uh, you know, the other thing that you kind of sort of mentioned and it, it, it got pushed as we started to shift into something else um, is the concept of how you've pushed your business model into kind of... Um, a heavy footprint in the web tech business. So yeah. um, kind of define what web tech looks like because obviously everybody has a different name for something. Um, and then what is it that's caused you to have such a, such a market share and what does that market share look like? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, 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 all of, all of these buzzwords back to buzzwords, cloud computing, one of them, um, you know, web 2.0, uh, which has gone out of vogue, but is, was the pre web tech name. Um, all of these new, large-scale IT-based companies, Ubers, you know, Facebooks, uh, you name it, there's a bazillion of them, right? These guys are building new business models that leverage technology in new and interesting ways, and they are consuming technology fast and furious. So um, if you look at the growth in the market, right, you've got a x86 server market that actually we just saw um, uh, some preliminary numbers that I won't quote directly, but we're growing in the mid-single sing, mid digits, right, in the overall x86 server market. But, but in, the, in the web tech space, the telco space, the large-scale data center space, they're growing at multiples of that number, right? And that is all being fueled by these new business models that allow you and I to watch movies on the train, you know, to, to make Skype calls, you know, to do any number of things. There's just a ton of net new infrastructure growth going on. It's not cloud computing replacing um, uh, uh, traditional on-premises computing, although that is happening. It's actually, more importantly, the growth of these new businesses and business models um, that are consuming technology. So we saw that early on, DCS, and we continue to see hyper growth in the, um, you know, consumer web tech, all of those cool apps that you run on your phone. They got to go get computed somewhere, right? It's not like your phone's doing all the work and storing all the data. If that were true, the thing would need a cart behind you to carry, right? 
there every time you touch an app on your phone, you're touching a server and frankly, hidden secret, um, more likely than not, you're probably touching a Dell server given the amount of footprint we have in those types of data centers. So it's a huge business for us and one why you see us innovating around business models because they demand new ways of interacting with their suppliers. They demand new technology. They demand incredible density and efficiency. And in order to do that, you've got to be flexible with how you supply them. And, and that's what we're doing. So, so we are hugely... Go ahead. Yeah, no. You're good. Um, yeah, yeah, I was just saying we're, our presence in that market is outsized because we have you know, reacted and built a model that resonates with buyers. And, and that's, that's what we're doing. And so in these, in these businesses, um, is, the, is the vast majority of the consumption coming out of um, your ESG? I mean, maybe ESG is even top-down, still includes DCS and stuff like that, and I haven't learned that. But It does. When, okay, it does. so what I'm looking at is maybe more of your traditional, um, you know, the Power Edge line, you know, the, the, the thing that most people consume or see as, a, as an enterprise versus is it coming out of uh, DCS? And if so, is it like the MDCs or is it more out of uh, DSS and that line of more, yeah. va- you it's know, a, the, va- the vanity free? Where it, is that consumption normally coming from? It's a, it's a big mix, frankly. It's, uh, it, it depends. The way we think about it is sort of a, is a, as a multi-quadrant view of the world, right? You have scale, right? There's a lot of smaller uh, SaaS providers, the largest part of the cloud market is SaaS providers. And there's a lot of smaller SaaS providers out there that, that their infrastructure looks more traditional, right? It's, it's more power edgy, right? There's another set of customers, very, very large web tech companies in the US and China, India, that we're serving uh, via uh, DCS, with MDCs being one example, but we've got a lot of other designs um, that we don't show everybody because we're not allowed to, that are that are fabulous and maybe even more fabulous than what we do with MDC. And then there's a middle, right? There's this middle side, which is, you know, pretty high scale, but not hyperscale, not hyper sophisticated, but very sophisticated. And that is where the DSS team lives. And remember what I said, it's not DSS product per se, there's plenty of DSS customers that are actually using PowerEdge with slight modifications. So the business model of DSS serves that middle space between the fully bespoke and the, you know, fully off-the-shelf PowerEdge model. So it's, all, it's actually all over the place, and it's the business models that we interact with the customers that are different, not necessarily the technology behind them. It's a mishmash. All right. Well, uh, Matt, we have, we've definitely run out of time. I think we've probably gone over our time today. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, this is good. This is a wealth of knowledge. We, we're actually able to, to, to learn more about uh, you know, Dell Innovation and uh, you know, kind of what makes you guys tick and, and, for that matter, what makes you tick. So thank you. Yeah, I, yeah I really appreciate spending time with you guys and, and uh, you know, more than happy to share. I could go on forever. I, as you can see, I have no no shortage of words. Well, let's just. How about we just uh, hit stop on record, you know, in a couple of minutes, and then start over and record one for like the Thanksgiving break when nobody wants to work. All right. Let's just... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, Matt, 
where you know you, you travel around, we've seen you a lot on the cube and doing a lot of customer and uh, public facing engagements. Yeah, yeah. Where, where and when can people find you next? Yeah, I mean, you you guys found me on on LinkedIn, which uh, is one thing. But I'm I'm on Twitter, pretty active on Twitter. I'm Matt W Baker at Matt W Baker, which is pretty easy to find. Um, I've got uh, I'm out there on on me uh, uh, with uh, uh, Matt W Baker me. So reach out anytime, and uh, um, I'm. You know, I love engaging with folks on social media, so reach out to me. I'd love to talk. Sure. Are you doing any public speaking events? I'm, I'm going to be at Gartner Data Center in a few weeks. I think that's in the first or second week of December. Um, that's the next next time I'll be out there, and I'm sure it really starts to heat up again in the spring. So I'll be out there, and, and uh, I'll tweet about it, so you'll know where I'll be. Awesome. And then finally, uh, we always like to, to find out where you learn from. So uh, do you have any books or websites that uh, you would recommend to kind of get people w- within your thought process and, and, and learning the same way you do? Yeah, you know what? I, I have, um, I'm still a massive RSS reader. It might be out of vogue uh, these days, but I, you know, one thing I'll do is I'll publish my, um, my, uh, my file, I can't remember, is it OPML file for my RSS feeds. I use that a lot, and I've got a ton of feeds I, I pay attention to. Um, I use Twitter as a huge news tool. You know, I, I follow folks like, uh, you know, Chad. You mentioned Chad and, and, and a lot of folks at EMC, VMware, a lot of the Cloudarati, as they're called, um, you know, the folks from Pivotal, um, and, you know, of course, the folks from IBM, HP, I think, you know, Twitter's a great way to see, get a pulse for what's going on. Sometimes it's an echo chamber, but it's it's a cool place. And, you know, books, yeah, books are important, but, uh, you know, there's a couple classics that I think are worth revisiting, um, like The Big Switch, which I think was probably the worst prediction on Earth, worth reading, Nicholas Carr. Um, I don't think that's the way the world's going to go, and it's proven out since then. Um, the Long Tail is a great book about you know how how there's there's never really a big big switch. There's more a long tail of of, uh, of different types of models and different needs out there. So those are some of them. I got a lot of cool ones that I'll tweet about later if you want to look at on on Twitter. Yeah, definitely, man. Well, speaking of Twitter and uh, this the social sphere, if you will. Uh, we want to encourage all of you listening out there today to get social with us. Let us know how we're doing, uh, what you want to talk about, uh, what we could do better. We're open to all forms of feedback. So please, again, just get social with us. But with that, let's close it out today. This is uh, The Hot Out. My name is Brent Piotti. I'm Brian Carpenter. And thank you, Matt, for being on. Yeah, thank you. It was awesome.